Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017 and is located just down the street from Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Manhattan. Our channel will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our LSQ church family. We hope you'll subscribe as a way to stay connected during this season of uncertainty and social distancing. Today's reading is Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Amen. Good morning and welcome to Redeemer Lincoln Square. We started a new fall series last week looking at the life of Jesus, particularly how he interacted with Pharisees in the book of Matthew. And the reason why we're doing that is because back then, Pharisees were the thought leaders. And the way Jesus engages them reveals, unbeknownst to us, the stark difference between Christianity and all other faith views. I think many people out there, including Christians, think that Christianity is just one of many different ways to be religious, to order your life, to um, live morally. And the Pharisees, 2,000 years ago, they were thought to have been the ones living the good life. They thought they were fine. They thought that um, they were doing everything right. And Jesus confronts them and challenges them. And I think in so doing, he's challenging us. This text is very straightforward, so it breaks down very nicely. Let's see here what the Pharisees were doing, how we are doing the same thing today, and then maybe the power to be different. Okay, so what the Pharisees were doing, how are we doing the same thing today, and then the power to be different. So first, what were the Pharisees doing? And really this is just, let's, let's see what's in the text. Because sadly, when we first look at these verses, they don't really impact us because we don't see how they apply to us. Go to verse 1, and what we see there are Pharisees, probably an official delegation. They came to Jesus, and at the time, Jesus was out in the wilderness, and they come out from Jerusalem to have a, a, a word with him, so to speak. And they inquire upon the disciples' practices. And as they do so with much exclamation, if this is verse 2, they say, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? 
right? That's the phrase that they use here. And the tradition was not washing your hands in the ceremonial way. Now this means, and this is important to point out, this isn't washing your hands because they're dirty. Uh, this is a precise ritual that Pharisees had created in their tradition. Interestingly, and this is noteworthy, there actually is no Old Testament law that shows that one needs to wash their hands ceremonial before meals. But this time it had become part of the quote-unquote tradition of the elders. Now notice Jesus doesn't answer the question with a made-up excuse. He doesn't say, oh, the that's right, my disciples, um, they were out in the fields and they forgot to wash their hands. And I, listen, I'll tell them to mind their manners next time. No big problem. He doesn't do that. Nor does he go to the Old Testament law and say, guys, it isn't actually required to ceremonially wash your hands. Right? He doesn't actually make that move either. If he had made that move, he would have won the argument, but probably lost their hearts. Often when I'm in an argument with, some, with someone else, I'm more concerned about winning the argument and than moving the heart of the individual. Because I want to win. Because actually, in, in the argument, in that moment, it's not about them. It's about me. Right? It's about what I can do and showing them what I can do. So if Jesus wanted to win the argument, he would have said the Old Testament doesn't apply here. Instead, he goes straight after their hearts. And he actually says to the Pharisees in verse 3, he says, you break the command of God for the sake of tradition. In other words, Phariseeism or legalism, the way that they even got to this moment, this supra law, this added supra practice, was by adding to the law and requiring what actually wasn't mandated. That was the heart problem that they had. So I think this actually highlights, this is highlighted again in the second example given in verse 4, when it says, honor your father and mother, which is one of the Ten Commandments. It actually says that in the Bible, but Jesus shows in verse 5 that the Pharisees had created a tradition where one could devote to God your monetary assets and resources so as to protect those monies from your family and allowing only yourself to partake in them. In other words, what they were doing was an injustice to the parents. Back then, there was no Social Security. There was no social welfare or netting or even retirement. So if, if, if you couldn't work anymore, if you were too old to work, the only way you could survive was if your children took care of the parents. But this Pharisee law allowed one to keep their property out of their parents' hands by devoting it to God, which looked pious on the outside, looked great on the outside, but actually it was fraud. And so in both cases, the hand-washing for cleanliness and devoting your possessions to charity, these people used, under the guise of goodness, what the world at the time would have said is good, to do wrong. And I think this is an important point, because today, for us, it's obvious that fake cleaning and hiding your assets from deserving family members is wrong, but you need to remember that to them and to the culture around them at the time, this was actually the right way to live. 2,000 years ago, they were the good guys. They were doing right. They were the pious ones, the ones that everybody wanted to emulate. 
right? And, and, while, and while the culture said that they were doing good, they were actually adding to the law. They were making requirements that looked good but actually weren't. They were being legalistic. And there's two main ways that you can be legalistic. You can do it personally and you can do it socially. Personally, personal legalism is how we normally go about getting our identity. This is how. Psychologically, we put so much emphasis on, and pressure on us to perform, to do good, to be true to oneself, to, to live a good life, to get a claim, to, to get the job, to get the power, approval, comfort, control, whatever thing that you say I need to have. The way we go about it is we come up with a standard, a law or laws that we need to live up to, to pass. And if we feel like we pass the verdict, then we, then we feel good. But if we don't, we feel condemned. And so when we act this way, when you live your life every day as if you have to achieve, as if you have to make it, as if then you know who you are, when you create these laws, what happens is you judge yourself by those laws, but you, you tend to actually judge other people. And interestingly, you tend to create laws, laws that you tend to pass and others tend to fail. And we tend to judge those people on those failures. And it tends to elevate us in our own minds. And it feels good, but it's also ex exhausting. I found underneath a lot of the drive and a lot of the beauty and a lot of the success and accomplishments of many New Yorkers, underneath it all is actually still this unhappiness where you don't go out of your way to actually help other individuals. You don't go, don't go out of your way to actually be charitable. Because, you know, isn't it true that when you're happy, when, you feeling, when you're feeling good, you tend to let other people off the hook. You forgive them. You don't throw the book at them. You don't throw the, your standard at them. You're gracious because your heart is full at that moment. Uh, and when it's not, when you're unhappy, when you're grumpy, there's this kind of constant criticism and hurt and need to prove oneself and show that you're right and they're wrong. And so there's a personal aspect to legalism, but there's also a social aspect. When you add rules, when you create these paradigms to judge who's in and who's out, right, you end up separating yourself from other people. Right? You, you create a, a drive and a, a, a um, divide that creates a distinction and separates you. So go back to the Pharisees, look at them again. Right? All these rules and all these laws that they made kept them apart from others. Right? It's, it's actually pretty largely known that you couldn't actually sit down and eat with another Pharisee because, because they had so many regulations and laws and things to be clean and to do things the proper and orderly way. They would actually see your wrong habits and, and get up and remove themselves because of your practice. They'd find something wrong with you. Because uh, they had a right way to live, and if you couldn't live that way, you were out. They, they, would, they would remove themselves. And so social legalism is adding rules and laws so that you distance yourself from others and you create a rigidity that cuts off your, uh, you and your, maybe even your whole people group from other individuals, where you can't reach out, where you can't be with other people who differ lest it leads you to error. And so this social legalism is killing off and kills off our potential relationships. 
It puts distance between you and others, and it doesn't allow that difference and growth and change and agreeing to disagreeing and persevering and being able to, to actually be with individuals who are different. To allow relationships across political, religious, moral divides. If there, it therefore leaves us actually more lonely, more isolated, more culturally and intellectually impoverished because we aren't able to listen and relate to each other. All right, so that's what the Pharisees were doing back then. Legalism, both personally and socially. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastors and other members of our church community. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us for our virtual worship service on YouTube every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Eastern. You can find our YouTube channel at lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash YouTube. Now, the next question we need to ask is, I think, well, some of us would first say, well, listen, that's, that's them back then. I'm not going to go out into New York City today and fight over purity laws and fight over clean laws and ceremonial washings and stuff like that. That doesn't apply to me. But it does. Because the second thing that we actually see here is that we are actually doing the very same thing. The very fabric of our society is literally fracturing and being pulled apart by legalism. It's not religious legalism, but it's still alive and, and well. Uh, uh, last week I watched a uh, Net, Netflix film uh, documentary called The Social Dilemma. And I think it's actually kind of helpful because it highlights how our current social media paradigms are actually designed to um, hook users to use these platforms more and more and more, to put more and more time on it. Because the more time you spend on the platforms, the more time... It, um, uh, they, they can sell ads to you and the more revenue, more money they make, right? And so what happens is the user ends up being the product, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, take any, take any platform. And it was made, it's designed for you to stay on it. And so how do they do this? It's their algorithms that follow your eyeballs and how many clicks and how many likes and how many things that you put on there and what it does is it finds out who you are and it keeps giving you more of that same content that you like. So on the surface, it sounds great. Hey, you're just getting more of what you want. But what ends up happening is that you only read and see people in your own tribe. Effectively creating social networks with people with only the same moral and political and social backgrounds. Every click then puts you more in line with those who have the same standards and the same laws that you have. Andrew Sullivan, in an op-ed piece, wrote this. He said, Alternative views, unpleasant facts, discomforting arguments are all filtered out with our, out of what our eyes can see and our minds can actually absorb. So they're all filtered out. And so what happens is, as screen time goes up, because we haven't actually wrestled with the differences, which this is actually making us more legalistic when we come in contact with people from a different tribe, from a different group, from a different race, from a different social economic class. Because we're only connecting with those of the same laws 
and practices as us. And we keep those standards and we judge other people by our standards. Who are, and the people with different laws and different morals are out. David Brooks uh, points out in a lot of his work that the old liberalism of the past couple decades preached that one should be able to uh, do what is right or wrong for them. That's where that phrase, that mantra, you do you, comes from. Right? It, it comes from the, the freedom to be able to choose your own reality. But Brooks points out that this, this old liberalism, young people have felt the emptiness of it because it becomes moral relativism. And they, people know there are rules and there are right ways to live by and they want something to stand on. And I think what we're seeing play out on a, on a mass level right now in both left and right spaces is we're creating a new Phariseeism that is actually potentially in us all. By the way, if you're saying right now, well, yeah, it's bad for all those people out there. No, 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 it's in you. We're adding laws and standards to the criteria that we want other people to live by. Creating absolutes that God never actually designed for us to use against each other. This is what I think Jesus is saying in verse 6 when he says, Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your uh, tradition. He means there actually are absolutes. Right? There are the Ten Commandments. Those are absolutes. Help the poor is an absolute. Racism is wrong is an absolute. Those are true. But both the left and the right have applied political strategies to address these issues that are not absolute. Right? To help the poor is a mandate for Christians, but is the best way to help the poor to raise taxes and create more social systems for them? Or is it, is it better to lower taxes and spur business growth uh, for jobs so they can be hired. Right? We're actually not told that biblically. And so then why are we canceling each other who disagree with this on that policy structure? See, this mandate is real, right? Help the poor. But when we elevate a left or right way to a position morally that is the best way, then we hold it as a law over other individuals. And this creates a rigidity that we see in the Pharisees, but we see it now in us. Both Again, I think this is happening on both left and right spaces. That's why we don't understand each other. Because these policies and means of addressing social issues have become moral authorities in our life. Christians, I think we should be technically the best ones at seeing this. We have the text right here. Warning us of elevating our traditions to the level of ultimacy, but we fail just as much as everybody else. We fall into these left and right narratives. And by the way, there's more than narratives than just left and right. There's so many out there. There's the narratives of, of our economic class. There's the narrative of our racial class. There's the narrative of, of, of you know, your people group, of your vocational class. I mean, uh, and we, we, we then judge other individuals against that. And so by doing so, we live by uh, these mantras, these super laws, these super standards. And we exist in our own enclaves with only people who agree with us. And by living in these separate spaces, we make sure we don't stay polluted, we keep the bad out and then the good people in. And this is, by the way, why some people are afraid to move to the city. Some people are afraid to move to the city because they're worried about getting polluted by it. But that's actually why some people are afraid to leave the city. Because they're worried that if they leave the city, those outside will pollute them. What if this church could be a place where, where you see united, individuals who want to serve the poor, 
who want to care for immigrants, who want to care for the widows and the orphans of the world and the needy, but we can disagree on the, on the exact practices to do so. We can agree that we need to do so, but we don't have to necessarily do it all in the same way. We can hold the same biblical mandate, but have different social policies to do so. So put it a different way, if you call yourself a Christian right now, are you sure that you actually are living in line with your faith? Or have you added to the gospel? Gospel is like grace, period. But have you added to it? Do you, do you cross political lines? Do you cross social and racial lines? Because if you don't, it's possible that you are living a very sequestered life designed by yourself. And that's not what it means to be a Christian. Now, if you're not a Christian, um, maybe you're not religious at all, but do you see how you might have created paradigms and rules and codes and laws to judge other people by? If they agree with you, then they're added to, the, to your algorithm of people that you want in. But if you disagree with them, we've canceled them, we've shunned them, we've muted them, we've defriended them. That means then, in some ways, we are actually no different than these people, right? It is what is destroying our society. It is what is destroying our church. I've had people, there's been people that have left this church. Not, we haven't been around a lot, so not a lot of people, but some have, and it's because we didn't talk about an, an issue enough. I know some people who have left because we talked about an issue too much. See, we've become brittle individuals, unable to handle differences among each other, unable to relate across differences, Christians and non-Christians alike, and it's destroying our society, our church, and even ourselves. So, last point, what's the answer? Where do we get the power to break this cycle? Because I think the last thing that we see here is that the answer can't be found in some perfectly well-balanced position. There's no platform, I can tell you, that's the middle way. Our differences in identities are too deep. So what will keep us from elevating a, a political or a, a, a racial or a, just a, a moral standard to judge other individuals by into the, realms of, into the realms of absolutes? I think Jesus' solution is found in, in, in verse 8. When he quotes Isaiah 29, 13, he says in 29, 13, he says, You honor me with your lips, but in your hearts you are far from me. That's from the book of Isaiah. And those are cutting words. He is saying, you all do this, one way or another, right? You, you, um, and you, but you're all doing it. See, some of us think we're actually honoring God with our standards and our laws. Look how pure I'm actually being, but really, it's just honoring with our lips. We're denying him with our hearts. And so what happens is in the, the quote from Isaiah 29, 13, it does give us the bad news. But Jesus knew his audience he knew the Pharisees would have known this text and they would have known the very next verse. Because if, if you go to Isaiah 29, verse 14, it says the phrase, therefore, in conclusion to this bad news, he says, once more I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. Now stop there for a second. We are double-minded individuals. We are legalistic and and moralistic, and we shame, and we cancel, and we divide, and we judge, and we, we hurt each, other's, each other, never applying that same razor's edge against ourselves. And what's God's answer? 
I have to astound you. I have to bring wonder upon wonder on you. Now, what is that? Isaiah goes on and says, In that day the deaf will hear, the eyes of the blind will see, the humble will rejoice, because the Lord is the Redeemer. Centuries later, Jesus showed up. He opened up the same Isaiah scroll. He pointed to it and said, at the very beginning of his ministry, he says, that's me. And on the Sermon on the Mount, he preached about the healing of the blind, the blessing of the meek, the loving uh, loving the needy, and then he went out and did that. Jesus is the one who brings the wonder upon wonder. As he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, all that is, going to be, that is broken is going to be fixed and redeemed. That is what he's promising. That is what he's bringing. And you say, okay, well, but why does that matter for our text? Go back to earlier. Remember when legalism comes in personally, you operate out of a sense of unhappiness. Or you don't go out to help and love and serve other people. You judge and you shame. But Jesus is saying that through me, Only I can change you by wonder upon wonder on you. In other words, the answer is joy. You need more joy in your life. See, what will change a legalist from his or her ways is enough joy to end the unhappiness, to end the need to stick it to the other person, to I'm going to show you, to end the hurt, that I never get my way, that I never get enough, that I need more, that... Look how hard my life is. All those narratives that you have, the only thing that's going to fix that is joy. Jesus says in John chapter 7, he says, All you who are thirsty, come and drink. And what will well up in them? He says, rivers of living water. It is joy overflowing. Our biggest need in this country, more than anything else, is that our biggest, pro- sorry, our biggest problems country is that we have a joy deficiency problem. That's the biggest problem in our church, too. We have a joy deficiency problem, and the only solution is wonders upon wonders. And Jesus, right now, to you listening and watching this, is inviting you in. Think about the last time that you were happy. Like, really, really, really happy. You didn't look out to criticize others in that moment. You didn't spend time knocking down others. Your heart was so so full, you don't have to look at others that way. That is what the gospel is bringing. Joy to fix the joy deficit. The world is going to be fixed and redeemed one day, and it won't always be this way. The world will be fixed. You will already be fixed. You are already cosmically fixed. Jesus died and rose again, and so will you. What could possibly be more wondrous than that statement right there? Last week, I was having a pretty low week. Um, I was tired. I was pretty bummed about everything, the pandemic. The weight of the world was on my shoulders in, in various ways. And I was in the park with my daughters, and my mind was on anything and everything else. And they were laughing, and they were playing, and they wanted, they, I'm sure they wanted their dad to play with them too. But I, I, was, I was so consumed with the apparatus of my own validation and my youngest one said to me, just out of, it felt like out of the blue. She's like, Daddy, Daddy. And I said, yeah, what? She goes, Daddy, right here in this place, right here, this is where you taught me how to ride my bike. Well, that was a nice memory, wasn't it, Daddy? 
I ride. This is where I learned how to ride my bike. And then she rode off, not a care in the world. And I lost it. I started crying and I started weeping. Why? Because she didn't know it, but that's exactly what I needed to hear from her right then. That I actually mattered. That I actually did something right. That I actually contributed and therefore was doing something right. See, I think all of us have a deep need in our souls to desperately be wanted and feel validated that I actually did something. That I'm actually useful. That I'm loved. See, feeling that one small earthly accomplishment was very nice right there. But you know what? It eventually wears off. It's fleeting. They all do. But you won't know what won't. Jesus saying to you that you matter to him because you were made by him, because you were saved by him. He is saying to you right now, Michael, you bring joy to me. I am so glad you're in my life. You are worth it to love. And if you let that in, It'll melt your heart in joy. Jesus made us his joy. And when he was in heaven and he had everything and he was asking himself, why should I come to earth? Why should I do this for them? Why should I make myself killable and face the punishment they deserve? Because the answer, he, when he asked himself the question, he says, I will. And he went. But okay, how do we know that he had this question in his head because think about it. What was the only thing that Jesus didn't have in heaven? He had his father. He had an infinite relationship, infinite love. The only thing he didn't have was the joy of you. And that means the only possible reason for him to leave that space and come down here and live and die for us was because of the joy that he was getting by doing so. Because you were worth it. If we see that we are the, his joy, now we can make him our joy. At the end, that's who we are. Last, thing, last example I'll give you. Uh, uh, in Lord of the Rings, the very last battle, one of the hobbits is confronted with the most sinister evil that he could possibly experience. He's cowing in fear. He can't lift his eyes off the ground. He's paralyzed. It's all over. But at the corner of his eye, he sees Eowyn a woman who was his friend and protector. And she's now standing between him and the imminent death. She's facing the evil that he couldn't face. And she's doing this against all odds. And she was willing to do this for him. And, and by seeing this, something changes in his heart. The text says his heart was filled with great wonder. And suddenly the slow, kindled courage of his race awoke, it says. Why? It wasn't that like he had all of a sudden superhuman power. He was the same small hobbit facing terrible odds, and he couldn't banish those fears on his own. Rather, despite his fears, despite the evil that was still very real and present in his life, he saw one doing it for him first, and it allowed him to do it too. That allowed him, it was wonder that welled up in him. And you can have that same experience to the person of Jesus. Will you allow your hearts to be filled with that wonder and joy and gladness? See Jesus telling the Pharisees then and the Pharisees today that he, 
that you don't get it. That I'm here to actually bring wonder and joy. Now make him your joy. And if you do, you'll find that you won't have, have the same need to divide and leave and silo yourself. And that we can actually build something here. This humble Redeemer Lincoln Square. If we can get over our differences, if we can get over our particulars, not that they don't matter, of course they do, but we can use them to love each other. Psalm 72 says, only the deeds of our Lord are wondrous. Let's rest in that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so wondrous and we don't even know it. Help us to sit and, and, and um, sip the joy that has already been given to us. Father, we, we don't spend enough time doing that. We don't spend enough time realizing what you've done and letting that impact our life. So we just pray, Father, that you, t despite everything going on around us, this, every, interestingly, everything I've just said has nothing to do with our circumstances, has nothing to do with how hard life is. It has everything to do with what you've done. Turn our hearts and minds towards you and all that we do. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already. And we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.